Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to The Educated Home Buyer, where our goal is to help you buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and financing. At the moment, interest rates are near 7%, buyer demand's dropping off, we're headed into a time of the year where things are a little bit slower. So there's a lot of people at the moment sitting on the sidelines, hoping for interest rates to come down, hoping for home prices to come down. Some are just priced out due to affordability. So what we're actually going to talk about today is what you should be doing, what you should be thinking about in this time, uh, you know, the slowing season, if you will, not just a season in the market, you know, a season of life, if you will. What are the things that you should be focusing on if you want to become a home buyer in the next few months, few years? Josh, we'll start there. Absolutely. You know, we we get this question all the time, or not even a question. A lot of times on the live show each week, um, we just a comment. Um, we're wanting to buy. We want to buy second quarter of next year. Well, why second quarter of next year? There'd be a million reasons. Well, we're paying down debt. The biggest one that we hear is uh, we're trying to save some more money, which generally that's the least of the reasons here of what we're going to go through. Um, obviously having a little bit more down payment is beneficial. Having some more money available to you is beneficial, but really today, um, when we're in a bit of a shifting market, you know, back during COVID, we would have people and we would tell them adamantly, do not save an extra nickel. Once you have three, three and a half percent down, you got to get into this market. It is rapidly appreciating. We don't have that sense of urgency anymore. So if you're someone and you have a 642 credit score, I can get you a good loan with a 642 credit score. Not as good as I can with a 682 and certainly not as good as with a 742. So we're going to go through all that fun stuff of how to optimize yourself um, and, and look at yourself as sort of as, and through the lens of a house. As a buyer, if you're a fixer-upper buyer, here's are the things that are, that are going to get you the most bang for your buck before you actually enter into the market. Now, I'm really going to talk about three different things on top of some things to avoid. The things to avoid are as important, in my opinion, as the three things that we're going to mention in order to be able to really prepare yourself. But what I want to start with, Josh, is really, I think, something that's a little bit outside of the box. And it's the idea of really starting with a lender, having that conversation with a mortgage professional, um, whether it's you know somebody that you, you found through a friend or your bank or whatever, just originally having the conversation or initially having the conversation rather to see where you stand. A lot of people want to buy a home. You know, a lot of people are, we talk about willing and able buyers all the time, right? There's a lot of people that are willing to buy a home and a lot of people that aren't able for one reason or another. And, and people just don't, sometimes understand where they are in the process. They don't know where their credit is. They don't know how their income versus their debt correlates into buying a home, how much that actually gets them. Maybe they're already there thinking they need to do something further. Maybe they're a long way off because maybe they don't have a job or whatever it is. But I think starting with having, you know, that conversation with having a lender and, and just going over where you are, what are you trying to accomplish? What price point do you want to be at? How much money do you have to put down? Maybe it's none. Maybe your credit scores aren't great, but, and, and we're going to talk about these things here in a moment, but, you know, leaving that conversation, maybe with some goals in mind um, of, of things that you need to focus on, because I think, you know, Josh, I, I don't 
ever sit on the other side of your conversations when you're talking to the, you know, to prospective buyers or what have you. But I, I'm sure there's, you know, the people that don't qualify, there's some things that, Hey, listen, if you want to be a homeowner, these are the things you need to focus on. So, yeah, you just brought up a, a, a lot of stuff. Um, look at this through the lens of what is the realtor's role and what is the lender's role. I always say no one wants a loan. A loan is a necessary evil in this process. They want a house. And that's why 90% of buyers are going to start by calling you, calling the realtor. Hey, you have a house. I saw this listing online. Or, hey, I hear you help people buy houses. And your one of your first responses is need you to talk to a lender. I always tell people never too early for us to talk. That's not because I want to sell you and get my claws in you. It's that a lot of times there's some work that you need to do. You're not ready today. It might be a month, it might be three months, it might be a year. Um, and it's never too early for us to have that conversation because now we can quantify it. And that means even going to the through the pre-approval process of looking at a loan application. So we see your work history, um, looking at where you are in terms of your bank statements. How much do you have available now? How much can you save? So that whole thing is once we finish that conversation, you now have certainty and a game plan before you say, hey, we would like to buy second quarter of next year. Uh, we get that a lot. You know, I want to buy after the first of the year. I want to buy next summer. Okay, cool. Let's make sure there's nothing that we need to work on between now and then so that there's not a surprise that prevents you from doing that when you want to talk to me 30 days before you hope to close escrow on a home. No, and you said something important there that I, I want to talk that, I mean, mentioned that a lot of people might not know is you said, you know, it's not like you want them to come and have a conversation with them so you can lock the, your claws into them and make money or whatever. You don't get paid until they actually close a the deal. There, there's no fee for, for having a conversation to see where you stand. And I think that's really important to note is, you know, if you're looking to buy a house, there's really, there's nothing um, at risk if you will, like you're not putting anything on the table, potentially losing any money by having a conversation with a mortgage professional. All it's going to do is potentially benefit you, you know, give you something again to work towards. And that's really what we're going to talk about right now, Josh. Absolutely. Hey, you so, know, on that, on that note, Jeb, I'm, I'm sitting here, I have a text thread over here and I have a, a potential client who is pre-approved by a, a family friend and we're going through. And the biggest thing is she's not getting her questions answered, actually getting a really good loan in terms of the terms. So that whole front end process is make sure you get someone that, that asks questions, that listens to you, hears you, and is giving you the comfort level that you need because there's a lot of questions and you don't want to be like these folks and get into escrow with Jeb or another realtor on a house. And you're like, I don't really know where I'm at or what we're doing. No, good stuff. So, you know, we often hear people talk about down payment. I need to save more money for a down payment or I need to work on my credit score. I want to start with the idea of down payment because I think you know, there's some myths out there in the market for one that you need a 20% down payment to buy a house. Um, and then there's also myths that you can buy a house with no, absolutely no money down. And in some cases, that's not a myth, but it's more likely a myth than it is true for most of the people out there. And having that conversation with a, a mortgage pro like Josh will, you know, give you some guidance on that. But the idea of working on a down payment, I think that's something that in this environment, if you don't have a down payment, you know, if you're starting really with no money, 
you know, um, in your checking savings account to be able to buy a house, even if you're fortunate enough to be able to get a VA loan with 100% financing or USDA, you're likely going to need some money for closing costs. So the very first thing we want to talk about today is potentially like budgeting, you know, being able to write down your expenses. I think, Josh, you know, a lot of people listening to this because they're first time homebuyers might not be aware of this, but you know, when you're talking to mortgage professional out there, you know, I might call and say, you know, Josh, I'm looking to buy a house and, and the conversation with you might be different than other people. But what I would say is most people are going to end up telling you, Hey, this is how much you can afford to purchase. Right? So it might be, Hey, Jeb, based on your income, based on your debts, based on your down payment, your credit scores, whatever you can afford a $500,000 home. And I go and I look at that and go, holy cow, that's a lot of payment. But Josh said, I can afford it. That means I can do it. And what a lot of people in my experience never do prior to having that conversation is really writing down all your expenses. What does that look like? How much do I spend on gas? How much do I spend on groceries? How much do I spend on childcare? Am I still paying alimony? Am I still paying child support? All of these different things, student loans, like, oh, they're in forbearance. I'm not having to pay them right now, but I'm going to have to. So I need to budget for this stuff. And really coming away with a number that you're comfortable with every single month that you're able to afford and then have your lender backtrack and say, okay, if my payment, if this is the most I want my payment to be, how much can I afford? And Josh then comes back and says, okay, instead of 500, now it's 350. And having a different conversation in order to start, Josh. There, you're 100% correct. And this, there's a give and a take on this. And the version that I get often is people, okay, cool. Um, we we want to buy a house. Uh, my realtor referred me over to you. We just need you to tell us what we can afford. And I say, I have no idea what you can afford. What I'm going to tell you is what you can qualify for. And the reason being, Jeb and I are... Um, Similar, very similar in many ways. Um, live in same neighborhoods, um, similar industries. But what's different is, um, I don't, I don't have any kids. Just that is a big expense. Um, you know, there we can have different preferences. If my wife and I like to eat out uh, at a steakhouse every night, we could have the exact same income, the two of us. But our um, voluntary spending goes many different places. So what I am never going to capture in your pre-approval is where your discretionary money goes. We're going to go through, we're going to see what shows up on your credit report, the student loans, credit cards, auto loans, RV, boat, anything that shows up on the credit report, we're going to take into account. We're not going to take into account um, that you DoorDash seven nights a week, um, that you have every streaming service on the planet, that you love to Uber everywhere you go because you love to drink and and you like $20 drinks when you're out on the town. And that's, those aren't judgment calls. It's just any one or, or all of those things can vastly change what your perception is with your income of what you qualify for. So we're going to give you the program guidelines, and then you're going to come back and tell me what your comfort level is. And Jeb, some of the, the versions that I get of this, I get the really conservative person, uh, and they come back and they say, okay, I can afford $2,000 a month. And we go through it, and I go, Sir, you make $25,000 a month. Yeah, but I, I, I've got this and I've got this. I can only afford $2,000 a month. Or you go through it and same person tells you that and, and you go, okay, um, I'm seeing that you have this much income and the guidelines say you could afford $5,000 a month. And he comes back and says, well, no, I have three kids um, that don't live with me. So I've got 
uh, $3,200 a month of child support, then two of them are in college, and I pay about $1,500 a month towards tuition for them. You go, okay, now I'm getting why your $25,000 makes it feel like you can only afford $2,000. So it's a very important conversation, and you having your budget of knowing what are my fixed expenses, what are the things that I have to pay every month, and then what are my variable expenses, all those things we talked about, how much do you Uber, how much do you DoorDash, what streaming services do you have, those things are discretionary. You don't have to have them, and we can sacrifice some of those, but if, if you haven't gone through that budgeting process and know, hey, I have this much money that comes in every month, and here's where it goes, you can't truly know whether you should be comfortable with the number that I give you, because I'm going to tell you, the guidelines say this, the majority of my customers customers end up here, it still doesn't tell you much. It's where does it hit you and your personal spending habits? No. And, and when we talk about working on a down payment, there's no really, there's no real easy way to, to work on your down payment other than cutting expenses, you know, getting rid of things that, that you don't necessarily need. Um, you know, maybe the Starbucks every day, maybe, you know, the Netflix every month or whatever it is, and just taking that money and sticking it into an account every single month, you know, maybe investing it in something, um, and, and just getting some compound interest there and, and hopefully, you know, letting that money grow for the period of time while you're waiting outside of that, there's not really a, a, a big way to save, um, uh, money for a down payment. Uh, but the next two things we're going to talk about actually, in my opinion, probably have a bigger impact on being able to qualify than just saving for a down payment. You need a down payment in most cases, or at least some money for closing costs. So having this, I'm not brushing it off saying it's not necessary. These are things that are important, but Before, it's really difficult, Josh, to tell somebody how to save more money other than just doing the obvious, which is is cutting expenses. Think of two really good examples that you just gave. Let's say someone has a Starbucks a day habit and it's 550 or whatever. And then they also have Netflix and they're able to give up their, their Netflix. So the Netflix is only $25 a month, $20 a month. So you save 250 over the course of a year. That $5 a day Starbucks habit is $1,500. You didn't even save an additional $2,000 over the next year. So from that perspective, it makes it very hard. And when I show people the difference between principal and interest plus mortgage insurance at 3% versus 5%, or even 5% and 10%, most people go, wow, I would have thought the extra money was going to make a much bigger difference in my monthly payment and in terms of what I qualify for. Again, yet another reason to get with the lender ahead of time and start running through those numbers, because it is hard to save on a scale that makes a massive impact in your qualifications and your monthly payment. And, and honestly, that's not something you're going to know without having the conversation. It's like, don't look at yourself and go, well, I should have known that. You don't know what you don't know. And, and, you know, if you're having a conversation with a professional, they're going to be able to, 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 you know, guide you through that and really tell you where to focus. And, and the next two things, like I said, Josh, are really, I think the most important. And these are things that you can feasibly work on. I mean, things that you can actually do in order to better your circumstances, especially in, in a market right now where maybe, you know, there's some volatility and maybe you're just unsure and maybe it's not the right time for whatever reason. And the first one, Josh is working on your credit score. I don't think people understand how much your credit score actually impacts the interest rate you get and in turn how that interest rate actually impacts your mortgage payment. 
No, it's a, it's a massive difference, especially for first-time buyers who are likely to have mortgage insurance. So we're primarily talking about conventional loans here. For an FHA loan, if you have an 800 credit score or a 600 credit score, if you get the loan, the mortgage insurance is going to be the same. But on a conventional loan, not only does the interest rate vary by your credit score, um, the mortgage insurance varies. So technically, someone with a 620 credit score can do a 3% down on a conventional loan on the, the standard balance. Balance limit. So under 647,200 as of now, it'll be going up to 700 next year. But the reality of doing that, um, that person is not likely to have a magical ultra low debt to income ratio that's going to allow them to absorb the difference between that 620 credit score, which is the minimum credit score you need to qualify, and the 740, which is the highest that Fannie Mae gives you credit for in terms of the qualifying. You're talking a three to four point difference. And in a more normal market, that's at least a percent in interest rate. Um, in the current market, it might be as much as a percent and a half change or interest rate. So when we're looking at that, it's it's a big amount, but that's before we even take into account what it looks like with mortgage insurance. Because the mortgage insurance, let's it, it varies on a number of factors. The biggest one, how much you put down. The more you put down, the lower your mortgage insurance is, but the higher your credit score, all the way up to that 800. Fannie and Freddie stop at 740. Anything 740 and above is your highest tier, but mortgage insurance, every 20 points that you add, your MI gets lower and lower and lower. So with 10% down, that figure can be under 0.2%. But if we're at a 620 credit score, you're at like one and a quarter. So again, another percent. So two amazingly similar borrowers getting the same loan can have an effective rate between uh, their interest rate and their mortgage insurance over 2% difference. No. And, and so with that said, Josh, what are things you can do, I mean, because you often have clients that are uh, looking to improve their credit scores. What what are you what are you telling them? What are things that they can work on in order to to improve that credit score? I mean, the very first thing I'll I'll start there is is you know paying down credit card balances. You know, there's some you know I don't know rules out there. Some uh, you know. Uh, I don't even know the word I'm looking for, but there's like common knowledge, I guess, if you will, that, you know, 50% or less on the balance of your, your mortgage, uh, I mean, on your credit cards every month will improve your, your credit score, right? You don't want to be maxed out. You don't want to owe more than 50% of your limit on those cards. I've also heard it's 30%. Um, so at the end of the day, what you don't want is, is credit cards where your max is say $10,000 on that card. You don't want to be at 10,000 on that card because the lender, I mean, the lender, the bureaus look at your credit scores and say, okay, this person is using all of their, their available credit. That's not a good sign. And in, and in turn, it actually impacts your, your credit score by, by lowering it. And Jeb, this is the easy button for manipulating your credit scores. I've had clients come to me that have perfect credit, have never missed a payment and have a low 600s credit score. And if you look, it's because they have multiple credit cards maxed or close to maxed. And, and I literally have seen a client come through with like eight credit cards and all of them are within two to 3% or over um, the limit. So the, the important thing to know, there's two things here. Um, we have clients that go the other direction. They're like, I don't understand. I pay my bills off. I don't carry any credit and, and I don't have as good a score as I think. It's a 685 and I have perfect credit. If you don't utilize credit 
there's nothing for the model to look at. So 0% utilization is not the number that you want. The perfect number, Jeb, is anywhere from 1% to 9% of your limits. It shows you use credit, you don't really need it, you pay it off every month, you got it all under control. Um, a, a, a real good target is the one that you mentioned. Under 30% is a very good utilization. Um, most people you know, don't have you know, the ability to pay cash for everything, so if you're using credit, you're probably carrying some sort of balance. Um, where you get into trouble is you're going to get a little hit if you're above 50% of the limit. It's going to get worse above 70%, and where it gets really, really punitive is if you owe more than 90% of the limit, and especially if you owe more than 100% of the limit. If you've gone over your limit, it is going to whack your credit score. And why I say that's the easy button is the only thing it takes is the ability to make a payment. I've had clients come in this situation, I go, I get it. You save 20% down. You would like to do that 20% down payment. You're going to get much better terms if we take 5% of that money, pay these credit cards down, do a rapid rescore, get your scores boosted up, more reflective of the actual risk you make to the lender, you present to the lender, and make that smaller down payment. So that's the easiest route to go. Well, if you, you have, what was that? No, I was going to say, is it, well, it, there's the other option is maybe you call the credit card companies and ask them to increase your credit limit. Because that to me, I guess in my, in my in my eyes is easier than actually paying the money down. If 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 I can increase my credit limit and in turn, you know, that improves my credit scores, then maybe I can still use that money for the down payment. You are 100% correct, except if you're at 90%, if you're over limit, they're going to look at you and say, "Hey, we passed. If you get that thing paid down and keep it down for 6 months, we will likely increase it." Where this can help is people that are at like 71% of their limit or 54% of their limit. If you can get a couple thousand dollars added onto that limit and get it down under 30%, that will absolutely make uh, a nice boost to it. One of the things Jeb that we're going to be seeing here is going into play here at the end of this year uh, and then also in the first part of the next year is how medical collections are being treated. Medical collections under a certain threshold will no longer be reported. It will take longer for them to be reported. Um, and paid medical collections will be falling off of your credit report. So medical collections are another easy button because most collection agencies will tell you they're not allowed to delete uh, a collection even if you pay it. So pay for deletion doesn't work for most credit uh, collection agencies. But with medical collections, you get a lot more leeway. They won't all do it, but most of them uh, will actually allow you to, to pay for deletion, which can have a big boost to your credit score. And even for folks, you know, Jeb, someone reached out to you from, from the live show last week and you sent them over. And I looked, they had seven medical collections that I know we can get those deleted. There's still four other medical or four other non-medical collections. And their thought was, well, why worry about the medical when there's all those other ones? And I can't get rid of those. The, the, the scoring model looks at the volume of collections that you have. So taking it down from you know 11 to four would make a big difference. Right. So you, you really want to be working with an advisor on the mortgage side. We look at a ton of credit reports. I know what's going to boost and not boost your scores. And I also know more importantly, when things are above my pay grade and we need to get you to a credit counselor that actually manages this process for you because credit scores are much more manipulable than what you would think. And there are certain thresholds that are critically important. We had a client the other week 
we had a 659 credit score. Um, we got one collection. It was a medical collection. We got it deleted and went to a 685. It's a monster difference in, in terms between a 659 and a 685, even though we're only talking, what, 25, 26 points there. No, for sure. And then earlier you mentioned the idea of not having any credit at all. Um, one thing, you know, you can do is if you don't have a lot of credit is if you have a, you know, a family member, a spouse, somebody that has good credit that's had, you know, a credit card for an extended period of time, you can get, you know, um, approved as an authorized user on that account. And the credit history, at least my understanding is the credit history from that account will now report on your, on your credit report and in turn give you some credit um, in order to to boost your score, is that right? Absolutely. So, yeah. um, uh, authorized user will one hundred percent help. You absolutely do want to start building some credit of your own, and it goes back to the whole thing. Um, you can get a lot of great advice from Dave Ramsey. You can also get a lot of terrible advice. Dave says, um, "Don't use credit. Uh, you don't have to get a credit score to get a mortgage." That is technically correct. We can do it on certain programs. His preferred lender that he refers out, if you call the Dave Ramsey hotline, he's gonna send you to a specific lender who specializes in doing those, but you are going to pay a premium. So just because it's possible does not mean that you you want to do it. And the best way to get a score, um, it is hard. Like if you've gone out and you have no credit history, never have had an account, most banks won't give you a credit card. They won't give you anything on time. So look online for the best secured credit cards. If you have a credit union account, almost every credit union will give you a secured card. So even if it has a $300 limit, hook your cell phone bill up to it. Pay that 60 bucks every month. Um, when it comes, pay it off. Again, you wanna be showing a balance on there. You wanna stay, just like Jeb said earlier, under 30%, under 10%, even better. But you want the scoring model to see you have credit, you're using it, and you've built a score. If you get as an authorized user on, on a family member's card, on two cards, and you get two uh, secured cards for yourself, within a couple of months, you're going to have a score. It's probably gonna be a pretty good score. And six to 12 months down the line, you will have established good credit, can probably go get an unsecured card and have your family member take you off of their authorized user and have established your own. So again, it's a strategy and you wanna make sure you're working with an advisor that knows these ideas and tips and strategies versus just saying, hey, I can't help you, you don't have a credit score. Yeah, and some obvious ones are paying off collections, depending on the balance of them. And again, it's it's going to depend like some of these, you know, if you have a really old collection that's seven or eight years old, probably not affecting your score as much as something that just happened recently. So, you know, again, talking to an expert, an advisor, you know, somebody that understands credit reports can kind of guide you through that um, and, and help you improve that credit score. But, you know, like we said, Having really good credit scores is going to improve, you know, your affordability um, and again, the monthly payment at the end of the day, because that's probably what you're more focused on than anything else than having, you know, a little bit more down payment. So focus so on that credit score. Yeah. Jeb, three, three things you, you hit uh, at the two. It's going to get you a better rate. It's going to get you a better mortgage insurance rate if it's a conventional loan. But all of the automated underwriting systems take that credit score into account. Someone with an 800 credit score will get approved at a debt to income ratio that meets the guidelines, whereas someone with a 642 credit score may not get approved with the same debt to income ratio. And they may have more money in the bank. They may have put more down. Um, but the, the credit scoring or the, the automated underwriting absolutely takes that credit score into account. So of all of the elements here, it's probably the easiest to improve and manipulate. And it's probably the most important in terms of the terms that you pay and whether you qualify or not.
No, and you just mentioned something important there is debt to income ratio. And that's really the third thing that we want to focus on here because, you know, improving your debt to income ratio, which means, you know, improving how much debt you have versus your income will likely improve how much you can afford to purchase. And in some cases might, you know, uh, decide on what type of loan you can get. You might be able to get a better loan because you have a debt to income ratio. If you have a really high DTI, sometimes conventional loans, you can't get them, right? Because they're maxed out at say 43, 45%, whereas FHA goes higher. And with FHA, the terms might be worse than they would have been otherwise, but that's the only way you can get it done. So really focusing on debt to income and what we mean there is paying off debt. You know, we talked about having credit cards. We've talked about budgeting, you know, really focusing on, okay, what, what debts do I have? And, and, you know, we're, I'm going to quote Dave Ramsey again here. Um, and this is just by accident. You know, he uses something called the snowball effect. And this is something that I believe works. And that's like prioritizing your debts in order from smallest to largest. And a lot of people believe that you should, you know, start with the elephant in the room, you know, bite off the, the biggest one and work yourself down. You know, he believes in going the other direction. Start with the smallest balance, pay it off as quickly as possible and use the, you know, the money and then still pay the minimums on all, everything else, but pay the most towards that small, you know, the smallest balance first. Then once that's paid off, you've got some momentum, right? Feels good. You're taking that money that you were paying on that one and now putting it on the second uh, smallest debt and paying the minimums on everything else until you really get all of those debts taken care of. Now, this isn't always the best way, I'll be honest, to take care of them. Some Sometimes you might have a smaller balance that has a higher payment and that you can maybe pay that off and it might improve your debt to income ratio a little bit more. And Josh can talk about that. But really here talking about, you know, getting that DTI down because by getting the DTI down, it's really going to help with affordability. Yeah, I we we said a bad thing about Dave Ramsey. He gives terrible advice regarding uh, not needing a credit score. But the snowball stuff is is great advice. And um, I just like to say it a different way. And you kind of hinted at this snowball it. Um, but starting with the smallest debts is helpful because you're getting the momentum. You're getting the snowball rolling downhill. Um, if you want to be as efficient as possible, you would start with the highest interest rate and put the most towards that. If we're getting close to qualifying for a mortgage, we want to start with the highest payment. As Jeb said, that's going to have the biggest impact on your debt to income ratio. So again, it's just being strategic and not being dogmatic with the, the snowball approach of saying, okay, any of these are good options, but for any individual, there's an optimal way to approach it and depending on your timeline of when you wanna qualify for a home. But it is important to get your debts under control, manageable, and as low as possible. And the second thing here that, that kind of goes right hand in hand with that is a lot of people out there have student loan debt. Um, and student loans can really affect your ability to qualify for a home. And you might not understand this or know this, or, or you might say, my, my student loans are in forbearance. I don't have, even have a payment or my payment is zero or whatever it is, and not truly understand the impact on, a, on how it uh, affects your qualifying. But there are some ways to reduce those student loans, um, at least the monthly payments, if you haven't already taken advantage of that. And Josh, I'm going to throw it your way because you guys deal with this a lot. A lot. So uh, back in 2015, 2016, when the student loan debt thing was exploding and got to the point where we were seeing a ton of borrowers with a lot of student loans with income-based repayments and none of the agencies, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA, USDA, no one had addressed it. They hadn't seen enough of them to know 
what do we even do with this and why would they be confused an income-based repayment is almost like an option arm on a mortgage from back in the day which is now illegal essentially you are paying less than the interest accruing so your student loans are growing every month you may have a, a public servant loan forgiveness at the end of the rainbow at that so it may be okay but from a lender's perspective, it is hard for them to assess the risk that you present to them in terms of how much debt you have and what those monthly payments are. Um, but what I can say in dealing with all of those borrowers, I would say less than one out of 10, significantly less than one out of 10, has a firm handle on how to manage and optimize their student loans for optimizing their credit score, for minimizing their monthly payments, um, minimizing the interest uh, charges and growth on those if they're in an income-based repayment, and maximizing their qualifications for a mortgage. We have a partner company that we work with. This is all they do. They help you optimize your student loans. That can be uh, setting up an income-based repayment. It can be setting up a consolidation and then getting to an income-based repayment. And there's a couple of consolidations, preferably the government consolidations where you take 20 government loans down into one or two loans. Um, but you also have private consolidations. So some folks who do not have the option of public servant loan forgiveness at the end of the rainbow will say, hey, I'm going to go to a company like SoFi and take my $80,000 of student loans and, and drop it to the lowest rate possible. But it's important that you talk to someone and know all of your options because I, I've seen, I mean, my record right now is two husband and wife, $1.1 uh, $1 million of student loans. And it is not uncommon for me to see anywhere from $100,000 to $300,000 of student loans. And as a huge impact on your qualifications, how you set it up and structure it um, goes a long ways to saying whether you qualify at all or can't buy a home right now. No. So just make sure you're working with a professional that understands these. There's a lot of people out there that don't understand student loans on, on the mortgage side, quote unquote mortgage professionals. So just, you know, make sure you're doing yourself a favor and, and having that conversation with a pro to start. And if you need a link to a pro, uh, there's a referral link in the description of this podcast. It'll get you in touch with someone. So the third thing, Josh, that we talk about today is loan options, right? How can you reduce your, your monthly payment, if you will, potentially help you qualify for more? You've improved your scores. You've got a little bit more down payment now. You've you know consolidated or, or got an IBR payment on your student loan. So that's dropped. You can actually you know get close to what you want to buy. Um, but maybe you're not 100% there or just looking to take advantage of, of a better rate, what's another option? So let's start with uh, adjustable rate mortgages. They get a bad rap. We've talked about this before. The bad adjustables that led to problems in, in the, the last downturn were option arms. They don't exist anymore, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, balloon arms that were fixed for two to three years and then either truly were a balloon and called due or were a teaser rate that were gonna shoot to the moon. Those also, for the most part, do not exist. So when we're talking about an adjustable, 99% of these are fixed for five years, seven years, or 10 years, and then switch to an adjustable. Why is this a good idea or why can this help you? Um, because most first-time buyers are in their home less than seven years. So a seven-year or a 10-year arm gives you fixed rate for the entire time of your ownership. In the last episode, we talked a lot about interest rates, why we do have an expectation in the next six to 24 months, rates will be significantly lower than they are right now. It gets you in at a half percent, 1% lower than the 30-year fixed rate and gives you a long window to move and sell the house or refinance to a lower interest rate. So it helps in terms of the monthly payment. It's not something that's really gonna help in terms of qualifications, 
because the qualification guidelines are a little bit tighter for these, but it can be something that just gives you greater comfort level in the monthly payment. So now another thing that's been very, very popular, loan officers love to talk about this, is buy-downs, specifically temporary buy-downs. 2-1 buy-down, a 3-2-1 buy-down, and what that means is that for the first year of the loan, your payment uh, on a 2-1 buy-down, for the first year of the loan, you get a 2% discount on your interest rate. For the second year of the loan, you get a 1% discount on the interest rate, and then for the remaining 28 years, it goes to whatever the current market rate is. The issue with that is a 2-1 buy-down costs a little bit less than two points. Either the seller needs to give you those two points or you need to pay them out of pocket. And the biggest thing is we still qualify you off of the note rate. So let's say even if you had a situation where the seller said, hey, I'll give you two points to pay for the buy-down, the rate's six and three quarters today. So the first year you're four and three quarters, second year you're five and three quarters, we're still qualifying you at six and three quarters. So that same two points on a permanent buy-down would buy your interest rate down a half of a percent for the life of the loan and you would qualify based off of the, the starting payment. So instead of six and three quarters, you're at six and a quarter. That can help you qualify for more. It can help get your debt to income ratio in line. There's some other considerations that can make the temporary buy-down a better option for you, assuming you would qualify for the home in question at either one. But again, as Jeb has said multiple times here, it's important that you talk to an experienced mortgage advisor, not a salesperson, not someone that works in a call center, not someone that's done this for two years. There's a lot of things to consider, especially all of the things that we're talking about and trying to work them all together to optimize your qualifications to get you into a home that you like with a mortgage you can manage and a payment that you're comfortable with. No, good stuff, Josh. So on top of that, there's some things here to avoid. So we've talked about working on a down payment, credit score, working on your DTI. What shouldn't you do um, when going through this process? The first one is having your credit run a bunch um, over an extensive period of time. You know, we're not going to get into super detail here, but you can have your credit run by mortgage, you know, by multiple mortgage professionals within a 45-day window um, from start to finish. But you don't want to span this, you know, couple here and there over the course of months and, and all of that. It's just, you know, you're going to end up having a lot of inquiries um, and, and you don't want to be applying. Again, if you're looking to build your credit with a bunch of different credit card companies, all these inquiries actually impact your score. On top of that, new debt, you know, cars, credit cards, all of these things, you don't want to go and run up a, a lot of big balances. Now, a lot of these things are important once you're already pre-approved. You don't want to do these. But if you're in the process and you're barely, barely qualifying or already struggling to qualify, these things can make it even more difficult. Third one, late or missed payments. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, and then maxing out credit cards. We've talked about that multiple times today. You know, you're better off trying to get probably get a new card um, and, and, you know, putting a balance on that versus just running up the one that you have all the way to the top because, you know, it'll have less of an impact on your credit score. So. Hopefully you guys found some value in that if you're you know, trying to prepare in this shifting market. If you did, I'd like to ask that you rate us, review us on whatever platform that you listen to. It does help. We'd also love to know what you guys want us to cover in the podcast. But for now, we appreciate you taking the time to listen. We appreciate you being here. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Homebuyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.